Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. First, I'd like to remind you that there are a ton of resources at wealthformula.com, including my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, and uh, George Newberry's uh, book, Burn Zones, which is about his time as a real estate uh, titan. Uh, Speaking of titans... I want to remind you that there is a meetup coming up, the inaugural Wealth Formula Meetup. This one is being called the Titans of Multifamily Real Estate. Why? Because we've got the Titans there. we got Kenny McElroy, Rich Dad Advisor Kenny McElroy, and Tom Wheelwright, uh, CPA. Uh, We have also uh, Dave Steele from Western Wealth Capital, which many of you know is my go-to. Them and Kenny basically are the two syndicators that I personally invest my hard-earned money with. So you got those guys. We got a number of others, including Damian Lupo and Christian Allen, to there to answer your questions. It's going to be a a very educational event. We're going to have a magical bus tour of, you know, properties that if you are in the investor group, you may already have, uh, you may actually literally have invested in already. So it'll be neat for you to be able to visit these properties. Now, I will say that you should check it out at wealthformulaevents.com. Again, that's wealthformulaevents.com. And I should point out that I don't know that if you go there, whether or not we will be sold out because we're pretty close to sold out already. So if you go there and it says sold out, well, you missed the boat on it. So probably will record the event, um, but I don't know what we're going to do with it exactly quite yet. So anyway, that's that. Um, Finally, the other thing to mention before we get started with the content of this show is that you, a number of you uh, have asked me about this mastermind I keep bringing up in this private group. Well, you see, the way it started was I had this course. It's called Your, uh, Your Roadmap to Real Wealth. Lots of really smart people in there, like uh, like Tom Realwright and Ken McElroy, but also like uh, Dean Graziosi and you know the real estate guys and a number of other really smart people. Kevin Day, uh, asset protection and estate uh, planning attorney. But that course is just you know sort of the tip of the uh, tip of the uh, iceberg, so to speak, because with it, because there is also a community that you become part of. And that is the Wealth Formula Network. 
and that has a private portal. It also has a private Facebook group where we communicate with one another, and we have bi-weekly mastermind phone calls, which are probably the most popular aspect of that. Now, is it right for you? That's a question I keep getting from people. They're like, yeah, you know, maybe I already know too much or whatever. Here's the thing. Who is this group for? This group is for you if you like listening to me and stuff that I'm talking about and your neighbors don't and your friends don't and you like to geek out on this stuff and your wife or your husband could care less. And that's why we build these communities because it's hard when you are of this mindset and you like to geek out on this stuff if no one wants to talk to you about it. I tried it just yesterday. I tried to tell my wife about some stuff I was doing. And um, she was pretending like she was listening, but she's really she really wasn't listening. So um, I was like, oh, well, you know, we, we have other things in common, and that's good. So, But this is, uh, and as far as, you know, the level of conversation, I don't know, maybe every, you know, some of you are way smarter than me, but I will tell you on these mastermind calls, for example, virtually every call I learn something new. And uh, if that sounds like something you're interested in, uh, don't be a tire kicker. It's just silly because you can just cancel your subscription if you want to as well. Uh, Go to wealthformularoadmap.com and uh, check that out. Now, as for today's show, we're going to go back a little bit and start talking a little bit about Bitcoin and blockchain again. Uh, I know there's a separate podcast for that we do, which is called Consensus Network, which we don't do regularly right now because of crypto winter. But but there are certain shows that I think are important enough that I, I, br- I will bring them to Well Formula Podcast as well for general listening for any investor. You know, Bitcoin and blockchain uh, are not dead, okay? Uh, I don't know the headlines these days and what you're hearing. But in fact, if you look at the history of Bitcoin in particular, you will see that it seems to have a particularly feline propensity for multiple lives. Yes, at least nine lives, I would say. After being battered and beaten up so many times, why is Bitcoin not dead? That is the question. It's been declared dead so many times. I mean, listen, so... They got to me to thinking why that's the case, and and it's funny because last uh, my daughter was sick earlier uh, in the week, and she stayed home and you know wanted to watch movies. So I remember this movie from when I was a uh, I don't know, I think it was like in middle school or high school called The Princess Bride, and it was like in the late eighties. Um, and if you uh, happen to miss this one, by the way, you really ought to see it. See it with your kids. It is it is a love story, and I'm not a love story guy, frankly. But it's really funny too, and it's uh, you know it's it's um, based in the Middle Age with pirates, kings, and lots of sword fighting, etc. But it is also really really funny. It's got like Billy Crystal, Andre the Giant, and all these guys back from the day, um, and they're just a riot. Anyway. So here's this story here about this love story between uh, this farm boy called Wesley and uh, Buttercup, who is Robin Wright, who was really a knockout back then, I have to tell you. Anyway, the two were separated um, as Wesley goes off to sea, and she thinks he gets killed by some pirate and uh, presumes that he is dead. So years later, uh, Buttercup, is chosen by the local king to marry 
and she agrees to do so, um, you know, believing that that Wesley was dead and that she could never love again. Anyway, now this king is a bad guy, and he knows that Wesley is not only alive, but coming back to claim his beloved Buttercup, Princess Buttercup, at this point. Eventually, Wesley is caught and tortured to death by the king's minions. However, Wesley's allies need him back. They need him back to defeat the king. So, after finding him apparently tortured to death, they bring him to a magician who was recently fired by the king. And that that uh, magician happens to be a disgruntled employee of the king, played by none other than Billy Crystal himself. And when he sees Wesley, he says... Well, you're in luck. He's not dead. He's just mostly dead. But he refuses to help because he says, well, I'm not going to really help you unless there is a true meaningful reason to bring him back to life. So anyway, he so he you know, he so what he does is he takes his little puffer and Billy Crystal does and he and he puffs air into Wesley's mouth and he squeezes on his chest. And what comes out of Wesley's mouth? He says, true love. Okay, so the magician admits at that point that indeed the most noble cause to bring him back to life was indeed true love. But anyway, he doesn't really want to do it. So he finds, um, you know, he he makes up some uh, excuse of that he, you know, that's not what he really said. He said something else, etc. But then finally, he realizes that the the other thing to bring him back to life for is to uh, get revenge on the king. He ends up bringing him back to life. And it's funny, you know, they're, they're leaving Andre the Giant and the Wesley and these guys, and the, and Billy Crystal's like, have fun storming the castle. He's Anyway, it's, it's really funny. You should check it out. Okay, so perhaps my metaphor went a little bit overboard, but uh, just like this noble cause that was true love, that was worth bringing back this, uh, back to life this individual, in the Princess Bride, Bitcoin has been brought back from the brinks of mostly dead several times over because of what it represents. It is something, in fact, noble. It represents the ultimate storage of value. It has all the traits of gold, but it's better because it's portable. It can be easily transferred from peer to peer, thousands of miles away from one another, without the need for a central authority, namely a bank. Bitcoin's not hackable. It is decentralized. There's no central control. And also because of that, it's um, it's not printable. So there's not a like central bank that can just print it. There's a finite amount of Bitcoin that there will ever be. And so this is something that's actually quite magical. Okay, it just brings to so many ideas into reality. It's not even funny. So, like many people up until about 2016, I didn't really get it, and maybe I don't entirely understand even now because there's some people who are even more extreme about their beliefs on this than me. However, this concept of eliminating the middleman and playing such a pivotal role uh, potentially in the world economy, you know, to me. All of this, these ideas are 
unstoppable. They're not stoppable by any individual. They're not stoppable by any government. They cannot be just stomped out by any entity. That powerful message, unfortunately, has been bastardized by many, including, you know, the likes of like Ty Lopez, these other, you know, other charlatans who took advantage of of people with the idea of getting rich fast because of the explosive growth of cryptocurrencies. And that bubble created this frenzy that was built on greed. And subsequently, the popping of that bubble led to the current round of Bitcoin obituaries once again. That said, the concept of Bitcoin and distributed ledgers in general is anything but dead. In fact, it's 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 early years, right? It's infancy, or maybe it's not even infancy, but maybe it's growing and it's simply experiencing the growth pains of any new technology or concept that is new to the world. There is value in what is being created. And people will continue to make a lot of money in the future from it. They may do so through owning cryptocurrencies. But remember, that's not the only way to make money when there is a new marketplace being created, right? You can also participate in the creation of the infrastructure itself. For example, one of the shows that I did on Consensus Network was interviewing a major Bitcoin lending service that has nothing to do with investing in tokens itself, Um, They make a lot of money through a fairly traditional lending business. The only difference is they're collateralizing their loans with Bitcoin, right? So there is so much like that going on out there. It's just important to make sure uh, that you understand that. And as you follow the true meaning of everything that's going on and what this revolution is all about, that you're listening to the right people. I've made the mistake of listening to a lot of, you know, Uh, you know, people who you would think probably know more than they do, but in reality, they don't. But anyway, one of the legitimately smartest individuals in cryptocurrency uh, type issues today is actually Nick Carter. Now, he's not a social media figure, right? He doesn't have a newsletter. He doesn't have like, you know, courses and all this. However, for those at the highest levels in this entire new technology space in investing in technology uh, development, Nick has a voice to which everyone listens. So despite the polar vortex sweeping across not only the Midwest, but also the cryptocurrency world, this week I urge you to listen to my conversation with Nick on Wealth Formula Podcast when we come back. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, 
these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. So welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Nick Carter. Nick is a partner at Castle Island Ventures. And before joining Castle Island, Nick worked for Fidelity as their first crypto asset analyst, where he devised research perspectives on public blockchains. He's also the co-founder of Coinmetrics, a platform devoted to demystifying on-chain data and bring transparency to the industry. He's written extensively about token holder rights, crypto asset governance models, and public blockchains uh, as political institutions. Nick, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Buck. Uh, it's, It's a pleasure to be here. So I don't want to get too sort of pedestrian here, but I just did notice that you're you have a master's in uh, in philosophy. So how do you go from a master's in philosophy to the digital asset space? Well, that, that's actually uh, kind of a quirk of the Scottish uh, university naming system. Um, okay, that would be equivalent to an undergraduate degree here. Okay, um, it's just that um, at, at certain Scottish universities they call it a master's, which is very confusing. Okay, um, but uh, I, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I studied philosophy undergrad, uh, particularly was interested in uh, epistemology, the the sort of the theory of knowledge and uh, and political philosophy. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, crossovers there, um, yeah. particularly when you're designing these kind of novel uh, governance systems. You know, you're trying to determine how. Uh, property is allocated in society, and for the first time, we have the this ability to conduct kind of experiments. Especially, you'll you'll notice a lot of the governance schemes in crypto. Kind of many of them rely in some ways on these concepts from social contract theory, um, political philosophy. So there definitely is a crossover. I'm I wouldn't say that's how I got into it. I I ended up doing a, a you know a, after undergrad, I I did a, a sort of much con- more conventional masters in finance. Uh, which was uh, really uh, my ticket in, uh, along with um, blogging about this stuff and and starting Coinmetrics. Yeah. So, what was Coinmetrics? What t- tell us a little bit about Coinmetrics? Yeah. So I started that uh, when I was uh, doing my uh, my masters. Um, the issue at the time, this was uh, late 2016, early 2017, was a lack of good usage data on major public blockchains. So there were some data sources aggregating. You know how many transactions are there a day on Bitcoin, and what is the economic value of the flow through those systems? You know what's like the economic throughput. Yeah. Um, and they, they were very scattered and just incomplete in general. And I was trying to create sort of regressions against usage to compare that to price to say, well, you know, is can I design a model such that I plug in inputs from the blockchain's usage data and uh, you know, essentially train it to see whether it's predictive of price at all. Uh, that was kind of the hunch that I had at the time. But the the data was basically impossible to acquire. And uh, that's when I got together with, a, a, a you know, an engineer friend, and we started running nodes for Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Dash, Monero, et cetera, et cetera. And we took the kind of semi-structured data and translated it into uh, structured, comprehensible, simple data so that anybody... And you can do this on, on coinmetrics.io today. You can download these data sets. We're not restricting usage or anything. And uh, you can play with on-chain data to determine you know, what is actually going on on these blockchains. Because the, the idea was that 
um, if people had access to sort of the ground truth of on-chain activity, it would allow them to make better decisions as opposed to just relying on uh, on white papers uh, or marketing. Yeah, yeah. So some of the other ones out there, I mean, I, I, I actually, I, I'm sure I should have known about Coinmetrics, but what's the difference between that and say like a Blocktivity? I've, I've noticed Blocktivity comes up a couple of times where it seems like that's more just activity on the blockchain, but it's non-specific. Is that the difference? Um yeah, I, I I think Blocktivity mostly covers transaction count. Um, I I haven't spent too much time on it. I mean, the the problem really is the kind of analytical framework is still lacking with regards to really deeply understanding on-chain data. So the risk is that we're just aggregating garbage stats and giving people access to that. Yeah. And, and so what we've always tried to do is be very deliberate uh, in terms of uh, talking about the various nuances involved in analyzing on-chain data and and the constraints and the difficulties. So, uh, for instance, you know, there's this popular notion of transaction volume or transaction value. Uh, you know, what is the dollar equivalent value of the circulation on a, a major public blockchain per day? And the estimates for those on Bitcoin and Ethereum will vary over several orders of magnitude because it's just super imprecise. So, one approach we've taken, which maybe distinguishes us from some of the other aggregators is to be very definite about the the uh, the risks involved in, in using this data and uh, and the constraints and the drawbacks and so on. Sure. Now, uh, was Coinmetrics was that before or after you were with Fidelity? I started that before. Um, I think that was actually part of how I um, initially perked up my my future boss's ears. I think he knew about Coinmetrics, yeah. um, and then I. I wasn't exactly meant to do this, but I continued running it on the side while I was there and then uh, ended up uh, spinning it, uh, actually incorporating it as a business once I'd left um, and once I joined uh, the venture fund that we started. Yeah. And I want to talk about that in a second, but I'm curious about what your experience at Fidelity and, you know, uh, obviously they're now uh, one of the big, you know, the big players that are... uh, that are actually going to get their get their feet wet in this stuff and get involved. Did that happen? Did, was there a lot of talk of that while you were there? Were you part of that? How how did how does that uh, how did that all come out? Yeah, a great question. Well, the, the short answer is that it didn't happen overnight. It was a very long uh, and involved process to go from being skeptical or to put it crassly ignorant about these this asset class. Um, whether it represents an asset class or not, to being one of the the leading institutions, you know, in terms of leading the charge, uh, you know, right now with custody, and then in the future we'll see um, whether there's there's other uh, products which come out of there. Um, but it, it was probably about a five year process uh, to go from zero to uh, now they have a custodial offering, uh, which I think is is quite a distinguished uh, and differentiated product relative to the other uh, custodial offerings. Uh, you know, it got started as part of a wargaming exercise in 2013. Uh, it was essentially a, a scenario planning exercise uh, and, and, you know, trying to guess at things that might happen in the future that might be a threat to Fidelity's business. Oh, wow. And one of them was, uh, it was called frictionless capital markets. Uh, and the worry was, uh, will security settlement end up happening on a peer-to-peer basis? Because that's a, a, a really large part of Fidelity's business. Sure. And... That ended up not being the case um, unless we go to this tokenized world. I don't know if we will or we won't, but uh, it, it didn't end up being the case now, at least. 
However, that led Fidelity to this notion of blockchains and eventually Bitcoin. So they went through a lot of the the cycle that large enterprises go through looking at the private blockchains and evaluating those projects. And then interestingly, they felt that as an asset manager, they might as well focus on the assets themselves, you know, the cryptocurrencies, crypto assets. So there were a few initiatives there, but the one that eventually bore fruit was the custody initiative, which I think is a really important piece of the puzzle. And, you know, I know the guys on the team there, I think that they'll be probably one of the, the big winners in the custody space. Yeah, um, They have an extremely professional view on this. They've gone about it in a very deliberate, kind of a risk-averse way. Yeah, so my, my, uh, my little group there was actually distinct from the custody project. We were actually a small balance sheet fund, and I was hired to devise research perspectives on these assets. So I'd write long-form research pieces like, what does decentralization mean? What are the dimensions of decentralization? How is it manifested on these networks? How can we distinguish Ripple from Bitcoin, for instance? Yeah, Those are the kind of stuff I was writing about. So my goal there was to develop a, a sort of a, a systematic and comprehensive understanding of, of these assets. Yeah, it's really interesting to me because now, you know, talking about Fidelity, getting involved with the custodian side and actually saw today on Twitter uh, a guest that we had on previously. Um, uh, with BlockFi, uh, yeah. they made an investment in BlockFi, which is a, a collateralized, crypto collateralized debt, which is also interesting. Again, you know, just these small investments, again, sort of um, fortifying the some, some exposure to this asset class. And then you've got, you know, Yale's endowment involved. It's pretty interesting. I want to talk a little bit about now you're with uh, Cas... I don't know if you're the founder or you're you're with Castle Island, and and that's the it's a it's sort of a it's a venture fund, right? That's right. We're a conventional uh, venture fund. Um, yeah, I mean it's just myself and Matt Walsh. Matt was uh, Fidelity's um, director, essentially director of their crypto strategy. So um, I, I speak of their journey as if I was there, which is not the case. You know, I was only there from 2017 onwards. Yeah. He was there from 2013 onwards, so he saw uh, that whole transformation. And much of their, I don't know if you, you know, many crypto believers will believe that what they did was uh, praiseworthy in terms of getting their toes wet in the market. But if you're a skeptic, maybe, you know, you, you think what they've done is extremely risky. But um, their, a lot of their efforts in cryptocurrency are due to, to Matt's stewardship of that um, program. So he really has a, a legacy over there. Um, but so, yeah, Castle Island Ventures is, is myself and Matt. Uh, we got started in summer 2018, and and we've been deploying capital. Uh, we we are not an ICO fund. We're not a token fund. We um, we write checks at the seed stage uh, for operating businesses in the uh, cryptocurrency space, either building on top of public blockchains that we think are robust and reliable, or blockchain agnostic. You know, building the sort of associated financial services that we think will need to exist, building exchange tech, custody tech. You know, order management solutions, smart order routing, data. That's obviously what CoinMetrics does, those kinds of use cases. Right. When you're evaluating these kinds of businesses, they're not necessarily even, like you said, they're not necessarily even blockchain businesses, right? But they're sort of uh, part of the infrastructure or, or some of the use cases potentially of blockchain. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I would say a lot of them are kind of enabling businesses that would be required for this market to mature. 
so we're, we're still at a stage of relative immaturity. You know, it's very difficult for uh, serious institutions to engage with these assets in a meaningful way. And, and uh, you know, a lot of the pieces of the puzzle are things like lending, which is what BlockFi did. And, and that's my, my old group at Fidelity um, are, were the ones writing that check. You know, uh, Casa is a, is a portfolio company of ours. They help people manage their keys in a way that is kind of robust to various different kinds of shocks. So if you lose a single key, um, you can recover from that. So, you know, those are the kind of use cases that we think are enabling technologies to allow this market to mature a little bit. And then we have other kind of a, approaches which are more at the application layer, which will use the assurances involved in public blockchains in some way. So, you know, we're diligencing a few companies that are relying on the timestamping function uh, that you get from, from using, uh, from, you know, hashing data into Bitcoin or Ethereum, uh, which is kind of an interesting uh, feature which didn't exist, you know, prior to 2009, a, a very robust uh, timestamp database. Yeah. What, you know, it, one of the things that I, I think about sometimes is that there seems to be maybe an overuse, and, and this is probably part of that ICO phenomena, of blockchain in general, or at least the idea of, you know, blockchaining everything. What's your take on that? Like, how often... You know, do you see businesses that come at that, that, that uh, maybe they approach you or you look at them and they're utilizing blockchain or they're on blockchain, but they don't really need it? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a, uh, a condition that afflicts a large portion of this industry. I, uh, I've, been a, I've definitely been a, a fairly loud critic of even the word blockchain. You know, it's an interesting trivia fact that Satoshi... Uh, himself or herself uh, never used the word the word blockchain. Satoshi definitely wrote chain of blocks, but not blockchain itself. And you know, in some ways, that's just a neologism which kind of borrows, I think, the the reputation of of Bitcoin's uptime, you know, and and reliability guarantees, and then tries to apply that to what really look like centralized databases to me, um, and. I think it's been abused to some degree by maybe the IBMs of the world um, who are using it for PR purposes. I don't think their products look anything like a proof of work blockchain. Um, you know, in many cases, you have consortiums of validators that will come together and take turns signing a database. And to me, that is fundamentally very different from a public blockchain with permissionless validation like Bitcoin and Ethereum are, where anybody can propose a block provided they submit a valid proof of work. So I think there's a really distinct set of ideas there. I, I think, you know, maybe the private blockchains will be useful. That remains to be seen. But I think it's probably important to distinguish them because in my view, their essential features are very distinct. Yeah, and then the the other question I guess that comes out of that is is in which situations or use cases is it is it important or useful to be permissionless uh, as opposed to being permissioned but maybe just more efficient? Well, very very few use cases is right. it worth um, undertaking all the additional costs and overhead of of permissionlessness? Um, Bitcoiners would say the money use case alone. Um, and then people that like smart contract platforms or computation would say, 
well, actually, it may be possible to extend this and and create versions of Google and Facebook and and Twitter that are you know run on these distributed computation engines with a permissionless element. I definitely see the logic there too. Um, I just think there's probably a lot more technical challenges to scale before those uh, systems really work. But the, to me, the the main use case we've seen is is uh, maybe the most boring one if you're a Silicon Valley investor, which is just uh, the money, the sort of alternative um, monetary system. So that's the only one that I think has really proved its metal so far. And then I think it sort of remains to be seen whether we can extend these systems into generalized computation engines. Uh, but I'm also optimistic about that. When you look at the different projects out there, do you consider yourself somebody who's more on the side of being more of a Bitcoin maximalist or somebody who's sort of, who just sees a validity in various projects and who knows, are you kind of agnostic to that from your perspective? Um, I would say um, privately um, and, and maybe there isn't m- much privacy left in this world, but um, <laughs> privately I'm probably, you know, more on the Bitcoin side, like my own personal stash would be pretty much exclusively Bitcoin. That's the only one that I believe would last me foreseeably 30 years into the future without too much alteration. However, that said, I'm I'm more agnostic when it comes to diligencing um, operating businesses building on top of these things. What matters, I think, is that they understand the blockchain they're building on very well. You've had a lot of uh, startups that went astray because they were building for instance, on Bitcoin in 2015, and then their business models required that there were always low fees. And then when the fees crept up, um, they sought to change Bitcoin in some way or they, their business models became obsolete. So I think that's an interesting case where you have to really, to build on top of these systems, they're very uncompromising and you have to understand it very well. So that would be the main thing I'd look for. And then, of course, you always have protocol risk which is that the protocol itself changes in some sort of unpredictable way. Um, and that maybe also herds you uh, in, in the Bitcoin direction because um, what we have right now is a crop of uh, yet-to-be-launched smart contract platforms where their properties are basically unknown. You know, this would be your, your definities of the world, uh, your hash graphs, uh, maybe Telegram if they launch. Um, so, uh, well, th- those are just total unknowns. We'll see what happens. And then I guess the risk with Ethereum that I would identify is that they're good, They're sort of completely re-architecting the whole chain from scratch. Um, the consensus is being re-architected, the virtual machine, etc. So it, it may be the case that if you're a startup and you, you build something that's suitable for Ethereum 1.0, um, you're kind of out of luck when something really dramatically changes. Um, so that, those are probably the main things uh, that I'm worried about. Yeah. You know, the the question of decentralization in all of this um, or permissionlessness or, or, or all this is really kind of like something I've been thinking about a lot because I think there's clearly a technology that can make things more efficient, faster, cheaper out there. But there seems like there's this tension between sort of uh, the ideology of, you know, I don't know if you want to come blockchain people or or whatever, but um, of, of everything being decentralized and permissionless versus something that maybe has some level level of uh, central governance 
Um, but the technology makes it smoother. I mean, is there is there a balance there that you look at potentially um, and say, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be perfect in, in terms of the ideology behind distributed ledgers, but it works better. Yeah, that's a, a really great point, actually. You know, I think a great example would be EOS. So right. uh, they have probably compromised to, I, I think, you, you know, EOS fans would admit this too, that they deliberately compromised in terms of the, um, you know, uh, the decentralization of who's allowed to propose blocks. So, of course, it's limited to a pool of uh, 21 block producers who are voted on by the owners of EOS. Um, so it's more of a either democracy or plutocracy, however you want to characterize it. And then there's obviously there's the risk that there's bribery and then it becomes sort of a racket where the larger block producers are essentially buying political support, um, which is, a you know, we've seen some scattered evidence of this happening. So that's the risk, right? But in return, you only have 21 sort of economic nodes that matter on the network. And so they, I'm not exactly sure how the consensus works, but the conclusion from all that is that they can process you know, 10 million transactions a day, um, probably more than that, but that's the most that we've seen in the real world. Whereas Bitcoin does, uh, you know, 300, 300 400,000 a day and Ethereum will do up to 800,000. So, you know, I think there's actually a case to be made for, uh, for sort of very transparently compromising on the decentralized governance side of things to win some scalability gains. I think actually... It's an interesting state of affairs where we have lots of different um, iterations, you know, along with different projects on that continuum, and there may be a, a appropriate balance of both ends. Yeah, the, the the project that comes to mind when I think about that is actually one that you mentioned, which is Hashgraph, which I've been following, um, and I look at that as an investor and somebody who's interested in the technology as well. And a lot of the things that uh, Hedera and Hashgraph have been criticized for by you know the, the cryptocurrency community is ultimately that, first of all, there's very clear defined, um, you know, there's governance, right? There's going to be these large institutions involved uh, who are going to make up these super nodes or whatever you want to call them. Um, but that on top of that, they're actually, even though it's going to be open for everyone to use the blockchain or not the blockchain, the, uh, uh, the consensus network in this case, um, yeah. the, uh, even though it's going to be open, uh, to everybody, it is patented. So you can't go fork off and do something else to me, the utility of that, rather than looking at it as ideology just seems like, well, gosh, that makes a lot of sense. And then you, you know, you look at guys like, you know, Mance Harmon and, and these guys who's, who, who've got a lot of business experience. And I, I, I feel like, yeah, maybe they're onto something there. Yeah, it is a really um, fascinating question. I mean, I, I'm definitely uh, in the, you know, full disclosure, probably in the more skeptical crowd uh, when it comes to Hashgraph. Um, but, you know, I, I think uh, there is definitely a risk that um, you end up being, uh, you know, the Bitcoiners in particular are blinded by their sort of ideological priors and uh, kind of miss the forest for the trees. And I think, you know, nobody's laboring under the apprehension that Hashgraph is trying to match a Bitcoin for its decentralization. Um, I guess the relevant question is, 
are they able to strike a balance of um, of centralization and decentralization that is still compatible with their you know essentially the objectives of the chain? Um, and I, I will confess I don't know uh, what the Hashgraph chain is is being designed for. You know what kind of use cases in particular. Um, my view would probably be that if you're looking to create something which sort of undermines governments, which is an alternative monetary system, uh, then you probably have to max out all of the the resiliency and decentralization sliders. But if you are looking to create a, let's say, a version of Amazon or a version of Facebook, which can't be easily censored by the creator, um, or you know where deplatformings can't occur, then it could be the case that uh, you, you can only set those sliders to 75%. Yeah. So yeah. I'd... It's a. It's going to be a really fascinating question. I'm. I don't know if the um, the valuation is going to hold up at launch. That'll also be something interesting to watch. Well, yeah, yeah. That's the other. That's the other question. Um. And you know, in their in their particular case, their whole focus is really. I mean, they don't. They don't. Just talking to Mans Herman, they don't really consider themselves. Uh. You know, competition for Bitcoin. They really see, see themselves as a, a faster, more you know efficient way of um you know providing the infrastructure for decentralized or quote unquote decentralized here applications um that would be more efficient than than ethereum but you know i'm curious uh i guess from your perspective also what is your take on you know the growing institutional interest in cryptocurrencies in general in the sense that you know what effect do you think that um you know that kind of smart money or big money or whatever you want to call it has on the uh, ecosystem at large. Is it is it a net positive thing, net negative thing, in your opinion? Yeah, the, it's been the source of a lot of strife, probably from the uh, especially from the Bitcoin crowd. Uh, there's always this worry that um, you know large that uh, as with uh, the gold market where people believe that the, the gold paper markets are suppressing the spot value of gold um, and that the derivatives markets uh, s- suppress you know, the, the spot markets. Um, there's that same worry about uh, Bitcoin, for instance, you know, with, uh, with fractional reserves being the chief adversary in Bitcoin land. The question is, why would we then reintroduce these central you know, intermediaries that can issue fractional reserves? And on the one hand, you know, I definitely see the the validity of the critique. Uh, you know, however, I think the the interesting thing with with cryptocurrencies is that you can actually audit them with comparable ease. So uh, it, it's not difficult to provide a attestation which is cryptographically sound and and you know auditable, which which says, look, I I we have a uh, hundred thousand dollars worth of deposits and. That translates to X many bitcoins in our cold wallets, and here's a, a proof that we have, the, you know, a sufficient number of bitcoins in our cold wallets. And you can create those proofs such that they maybe obscure information that you don't necessarily want to share with everybody, um, but this, you know, so that people can still verify that you have the appropriate number, uh, you know, of, of bitcoins in your in your cold storage. So um, I think the issue with uh, rehypothecation worries and the fractional reserve worries with an asset like gold is that it's very difficult to actually prove that you know a custodian has the number of gold bars in their vaults 
But um, with any kind of a cryptocurrency, it's much more easy to prove this. I'm surprised that more exchanges and custodians are not issuing periodic proofs of reserves. And there's this funny movement happening in Bitcoin land right now where on the 10th anniversary of the chain being founded, so upcoming on January the 3rd, 2019, a lot of Bitcoiners are, are <laughs> trying to put together a coordinated run on the bank, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So they, it's I got to love the like cultural um, events that happen in Bitcoin land. So, you know, they're all going to try and withdraw their exchange deposits at the same time and kind of scare the exchanges a little bit uh, into maybe publishing proofs of reserves. The funny so, thing about that to me is that the the people who are so so involved with it probably don't have a lot of Bitcoin sitting on the exchanges in the first place, right? Well, that's right. I mean, mo- <laughs> you know, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So they wouldn't have any on exchanges right. anyway. Right. So I guess they're trying to tempt uh, the traders to uh, to temporarily withdraw their Bitcoins. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, I, to answer your question, I think in general, uh, it's a net positive. If you look at the messaging coming out of Fidelity's uh, digital assets team, they're very attuned to, I think, the issues of the space. They you know they're they're essentially crypto natives, so to speak. I I know the guys over there. They're they're longtime members of the industry, so they they really understand what people are worried about and concerned about. Um, and as more institutional dollars come in, that doesn't necessarily um, guarantee that you know the price will rise, but I think it gives us more liquidity. Better, can, it turns some of these liquidity ponds into liquidity pools. You know, uh, prime brokerage and and functioning less frictional OTC markets will do that. And I think that's a net win for everybody. Generally speaking, more liquidity means um, you know, less market impact of your transactions and, and lower fees and, and just more sort of robust exchanges. And, and maybe we'll see a transition away from the cowboy exchanges, which are kind of ripping off their users towards uh, supervised exchanges, which I think is, is a net positive. You know, I know you're not you're not following. You know, I know you're not a trader. I know you're not a prophet, but uh, you know, we've obviously had this massive sell off and crypto winter. Uh, and when I look at that as somebody who's looking at what's going on within institutional with institutional movement into this area, I would think that that would be reflected in um, market cap. But we, we we haven't we haven't seen that. Is that something you feel like in the next? It's going to take several years to see that kind of impact, or what? What's your take on that? Well, I th- you know I think a lot of the the call it a bubble that a- occurred in 2017 was due to the expectation of massive inflows from kind of a, you know institutional investors, large investors, endowments, hedge funds, conventional hedge funds, right? And I. You know, anecdotally, I'm hearing from my friends at non-crypto hedge funds. So these would be, you know, equity funds or commodity sure. funds. Oh, now we're looking at a, we're thinking about a Bitcoin position or we're analyzing Ethereum. So interestingly, now that the downturn has come, they're interested again, right? Because nobody wants to buy the top. Sure. Um, so, but yeah, I, I think the bubble really was a function of people's miscalibrated expectations it really is a slow process. You know, keep in mind that it took Fidelity a full five years to go from thinking about this seriously to actually having a, a product out there. Um, that's the kind of pace that these things operate on. And, you know, I've, I've talked to some of the endowments that are operating in the space and they're not taking a direct 
uh, cryptocurrency position because that's typically not how endowments operate. They like to go through managers. So right. they might back a cryptocurrency venture fund or a cryptocurrency hedge fund. Uh, so in many ways, it's still sort of indirect exposure. Yeah, I think um, I think I remember somebody talking about that with, you know, uh, for example, you know, Andreessen Horowitz has been involved with cryptocurrency projects. And then there's, you know, endowments that, you know, have been involved with Andreessen Horowitz for years. And yeah. so they're getting exposure, but they're getting exposure indirectly. Yeah, I, w- I would say the A16Z crypto fund, you know, $300 million fund is an interesting case where they will take a stake in a liquid live crypto asset directly. You know, they did it with uh, with Maker um, famously. So you do see the you see it flow through eventually. Right. Um, and then and then, of course, a lot of those endowments backed uh, Paradigm, that large new um crypto hedge fund so i mean it's definitely happening and i would say the the serious you know wealth managers i talked to are definitely aware of the asset class but in many cases um the questions are like well how do we analyze this stuff how do we value it um you know no one's ever come out with a good uh, dcf methodology for yeah. bitcoin or ethereum so i think those funds would either seek to develop those methodologies or wait till there's more more agreement or consensus on on how that would be done and and you know there have been i there's there's people that attempt ratio analysis i've certainly tried myself but um there's not a lot to backstop necessarily the value of these things for better or for worse right so i would say if you had to value bitcoin it'd still be based on your expectations of, of its future market penetration and and what you think the velocity might be in the future and to many uh, serious allocators, that's not a sufficient answer to the question, and, and that would keep them from from moving in. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's funny because you you know I'm on follow people on crypto Twitter, and I uh, hear some tweets from some well known people in the this community, and it says you know you know stick to the fundamentals, and I'm like, well, what are the fundamentals? I mean, I, I you know I get what they're yeah. saying. We've never but, defined the fundamentals, yeah, right? and and we have not been able to value those. So it is a it's a little tricky. I mean, I see value in it as a Bitcoin in particular is is you know the use case being you know um, uh, storage of value, but right. you know I don't think fundamentally you can. There's a way to um, you know to to quantify exactly how much it should be worth at this point. It's something that I struggle with. I, you know, I, I think about it a lot. Uh, ultimately, m- maybe it shouldn't be the case that it's um, hedge funds buying it opportunistically. Maybe it should only be purchased by users that can really benefit from the the actual attributes that it has. So, and, and people, of course, are going to try and you know guess at what what the, that population, that interested population, might be. But you know, I think a more authentic value might just emerge as a function of people learning about the chain and finding out what they can do with it that they can't do with with the legacy financial system but it, of course it's extremely hard to model that adoption process right so uh castle island are you guys um how big you know how big a fund is this who who are your investors or your institutional nature are you uh, our uh, our LPs. So um, actually, Fidelity came in uh, as our largest investor. So kind of a, uh, a harmonious uh, decoupling there. Um, and uh, the remainder of our LPs are mostly mostly um, high net worth individuals in uh, in Boston. 
uh, we raised uh, 30 million. Cool. Very good. And uh, how do we learn more about your work, man? What are, are you, uh, you're pretty active on medium. I yeah. So I, I like to, I spend my weekends uh, thinking about uh, cryptocurrencies and, and blogging about it on medium. That's probably the main place to follow me. Um, do the occasional uh, podcast here and there, but really, um, I, I like to do some more sort of data-driven work on Medium. So I did one where I, I compared the um, the TPS, the transactions per second, of a whole bunch of blockchains and then actually legacy financial systems like Swift and Fedwire and ACH. And then I also compared it to the typical transaction size, you know, so like what would be the average uh, physical cash transaction. Apparently it's around $20 and and what's the size of your average Ethereum transaction? And what's the size of your average debit card transaction? So I compiled that all into a single chart. Um, I was trying to compare all those different payment and settlement systems. So that's the kind of stuff that I'll do. Who won? <laughs> uh, it depends. Uh, you've got the ones with really small transactions, but there's tons of them. And you've got the really big transactions, but there's right. not that many. Right. right. Yeah. There's kind of a, a, it's two axes, you know. Right. Well, listen, it's been really fun talking to you, uh, Nick, and uh, I want to uh, thank you again for being on the program. Thank you so much. It's uh, It's been a pleasure. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Personally, I, uh, I feel like another Bitcoin bull run is, in fact, n- inevitable. Now, I don't know when. And it, it might not even be this year. It might not be next year. In fact, many believe that right now we have not really capitulated even in within this bear market and that we could see another 50% decrease in the value of Bitcoin from even where we are. Now, who knows? But what I will tell you is that I truly believe that in five years, and come back and listen to this in five years and tell me if I'm wrong, I believe that everyone who is listening to this show is going to either be very happy that they own Bitcoin or wish they had owned some Bitcoin. Now, on to other things. A reminder, our first meetup, uh, again, I mentioned is coming up. I don't know if it's booked up or not. We were capping to 100 people because we're trying to keep it intimate. I want to meet each and every individual who comes there. I want to spend time with you so it's not a big money-making event. I mean, we're not even breaking even on the cost of this thing. It's really cheap and there's me drinks and all that stuff. So it's really just trying to create this community and get you guys to meet one another and learn from these really smart people. Uh, again, that is the Titans of Multifamily Real Estate. If you want to learn more and see if that is still an option for you and to come to this meeting in Scottsdale on March 1st, 2nd, uh, go to wealthformulaevents.com. Now, I'm also, again, I want to remind you, if you want to be part of Wealth Formula Network, uh, make sure to check out WealthFormulaRoadmap.com. That's where you have the course and and these, you know, private Facebook groups and portals and masterminds, calls and all that stuff. So that's uh, WealthFormulaRoadmap.com. And finally, uh, every once in a while, I like to remind people that if they like Wealth Formula, and if they like what I'm doing, if you like what I'm doing, not they, if you like what I'm doing, 
give me a five-star review on iTunes. Now, it's actually a no, no, normally kind of, it's not that easy to find how to do that, but it's really simple. We've made it really simple. Go to wealthformula.com and you'll see a icon at the top that says, give us a five-star uh, review on iTunes. Click that, just follow through there. And if you think I deserve it, give me five stars. Why? Because iTunes matters, and that's how they rank these things. That's how we get more people to listen. That's how we get more people willing to come on and talk to us. We've got a phenomenal thing going here. Let's keep building. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.